Now, let's be real for a second. Christians are a little bit crazy. Amen? Amen. <laughs> like, can I get a witness up in here? Um, now, I don't mean like prepper crazy. You know, people who have seven years of food in the basement and are ready to live through a nuclear holocaust. Um, you know what a prepper is, right? Yeah, it's a hoarder with a plan. <laughs> Some of y'all are like, that's me on the inside. <laughs> I don't mean prepper kind of crazy, but I do mean Christians are a little bit crazy for what they believe. Because we believe, we're gathered today because we believe that Jesus literally died and then three days later that he literally rose from the dead. Think about, think about that for a second here. We believe, we actually believe that Jesus was resurrected, that he stopped breathing, that his heart stopped beating, that his brain cells stopped firing. And we believe that by a supernatural act of God, somewhere here in the middle of this scenario, that he was raised to life. Christians are admittedly a little crazy, a little cray-cray with their beliefs. So if you're here today, and you're thinking to yourself at some level, wherever you are in, in your journey with your walk with the Lord, if you're thinking at some level that Christians are slightly insane, then you're actually on to something. <laughs> There's a long history of this idea of resurrection being a little bit hard to believe. We get it. If that's you and you think Christians are a little insane because that, we get it. It's okay. You're in good company. <laughs> okay? You're in good company. And if you're interested in underground survival pods, just see someone in the hub with a name to it. No. But think about this. Anyone who understands what it means to follow Christ understands that believing in resurrection is a leap of, of, of faith. But we are here today to tell you that it's not a leap of what people call blind faith. It's a leap of what we're going to call an inherited faith. An inherited faith that has come down through history because of multiple eyewitness accounts where the testimony of those eyewitnesses are backed by multiple written accounts. So today, we're going to ask three questions about the resurrection. Three real easy questions. Who, what, and why? Who, what, and why? Who was there at the resurrection? What happened? And why does it matter? And we believe that answering these, these questions today will help us go away with a sense that, that this written word of God is, is a compilation. It's him through the Holy Spirit putting together the written testimony of people who actually lived this event we're here to celebrate today. Answering these questions of who was there, what happened, and why it matters will help us unpack the significance of resurrection. So I want you to look at John 20, if you would, with me. We're going to start with the question, who was there? And sort of get the characters and the story uh, fresh in our minds and think about the significance a little bit here. Look in John 20 here. This is the most detailed account that we have of the resurrection. And he begins here in John 20 in verse 1 with a focus on just Mary Magdalene which is interesting because we know from the other Gospels that there are at least other women, four other women named. So we already have at the beginning of John 20 this sort of, uh, you know, supposed dissonance here. There's this discord, this question of what gives John. The rest say this. So what gives? Jump in at verse 1 
and 2 of John 20. It says this. Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, so far we've just heard about Mary Magdalene, but look at this. They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, she says to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved. They have taken the Lord out of the tomb. And notice it says, we do not know where they have laid him. So at least at this point, seeming contradiction avoided. John says there were other women there with her. Also notice that John lists two disciples there in verse 2. He says, Simon Peter and uh, the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved. We know that this other disciple was John uh, for a number of reasons. The John who wrote this particular passage, it's his way of referring to himself. So, you know, who are you? I- I'm the other disciple. Okay. Now for the rest of the answer, for the rest of the answer to who was there, uh, for the rest of the answer to who was there, we need to jump down to a couple other places here. Um, look at verse 12 where it says the angels, two angels in white. And then if you're looking at John 20, jump down to verse 14 where it introduces Jesus. And then look at verse uh, 18 where it tells us that not only were there other disciples there, there were nine at least, meaning 12 minus Peter and John already named, and Thomas who was gone, shall we say. Uh, and even uh, the larger group of disciples might have been there as a part of this. The larger group of disciples was either the 70 or the 120. So, so why does all this matter? Why does who was there matter? Because it means that according to the Bible, at least 16 different people, maybe as many as 70 or 120, were among the first on-the-scene eyewitnesses to the empty tomb. Now, let me just ask you, if you come upon the empty tomb of someone that you loved dearly, three days after they had died, the tomb has been sealed and there are guards around it, would you just stand there quietly to yourself thinking, that is an interesting turn of events? (laughs) I don't know about you, but I'd look at that empty tomb and I'd go, something crazy has happened. Something crazy has happened. I don't have all the story yet, but I know that something has happened. Hey, come over here and check this out. I would be texting. I'd be messaging. Everybody on Facebook could be seeing my, my feed. Like, like, check this out. The tomb was empty. Now, the account of John by itself helps us answer these questions there are about people who collude, you know. Like there's this theory that a whole bunch of people got together and they were conspiring to get their story straight. Um, But we know that from other accounts within the scriptures, there were at least 500 people who saw Jesus after the resurrection. Friends, this gives us confidence in God's written testimony of the lived eyewitness testimony. So the first answer of who was there, this helps us. People were actually there. You can can question the veracity. You can can say this isn't valid. You You can look up all that. But we're going with testimony of those who were actually there. Many, many people, 500 after he was raised from the tomb. That gives us confidence. That gives us confidence, friends. Second question is what? What happened? We're going to spend a little more time here. We're going to go through this quickly in John 20, though. Uh, Starting back at verse 1, what happened? Just to get our heads around it, because there are some details that are fuzzy in John 20 we have to grab from other places. It says this, verse 1. Now, on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early, 
while it was still dark and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. Now let's piece together a few things here uh, because there are a few details missing here in John. Uh, Mary Magdalene, the crew, came early to embalm the body because there wasn't enough time after the crucifixion on Friday to properly prepare the body for burial. And, and they weren't allowed to buy the oils for making spices on the Sabbath, which started on sundown Friday. So they had to wait till sundown on Saturday or early Sunday morning. We know this from Mark 16:1. So as they're on the way, they thought, oh no, <laughs> who's going to roll away this gargantuan, uh, this gargantuan stone uh, that's in front of this tomb? We know that from Mark 16:3, which is a good question. Uh, that's a good question because this was no small stone. Uh, in fact, archaeologists have excavated uh, almost 1,000 tombs in and around Jerusalem from that area. And based on the relatively few wealthy tombs like this one that had a big rolling stone for a door, uh, archaeologists have determined that a stone for this kind of tomb would have probably been about four and a half feet in diameter. Four and a half feet in diameter. Not a small pebble. Uh, So they're on the way to embalm the body, which is a traditional way of preparing it for burial. They're worried about how to roll away this stone, and they get there to John 21, where it says the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So the first problem is solved. But now they've got an even bigger problem as they're there to embalm Jesus' body. (laughs) The door is open. There's no body. That's a bigger problem, in a sense, than this stone, because the stone was rolled away by someone. What happened to to the body? So what happened? John 20 doesn't tell us. Uh, so we have to go to Matthew 28, 2 to 4, if you're a note taker. Matthew 28, 2 to 4, where it tells us that the angels appeared in a flash of light and that the soldiers who guarded the tomb were lying on the ground, it says, looking like they were dead. <laughs> so what happened? Uh, supernatural stuff happens. This stone is rolled away. The soldiers who guarded this tomb upon threat of, of, of being killed if something were to happen to it, these soldiers were lying on the ground as if dead so that when it says in John 21, when the women got there, they found the body God. A whole bunch of other stuff had happened in between. <laughs> the work of God had happened supernaturally in between this time where they think, I'm going to go help take care of Jesus' body, and they get to the tomb and the stone's rolled away and the body's gone. (laughs) So what's happened is God showed up in that middle part. Let's look at what else happened. Jump into verse 2. We'll pick up the pace here. It says, So she, Mary Magdalene, ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved. (laughs) Hi, I'm the other disciple. And said to them, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him, which explains why everybody's running. Peter went out with the other disciple, who was John, and they were running, they were going toward the tomb. They had to see for themselves. Both of them were running together, lots of running. Uh, But, this is a weird detail, the other disciple, meaning John, outran Peter and reached the tomb first. So so John is writing this, and maybe to be funny for us, I don't know. Uh, He apparently feels the need to point out uh, that Peter is not in as good shape as he is. So he's like, hurry up, slow poke. I may be the other disciple. You're the slow one. So 
It's a small detail, uh, but even that kind of detail shows that John is being careful to report it as exactly as he could, as exactly as it happened. So verse 5, keep reading. Stooping to look in, he, meaning John, uh, the fast one, saw the linen cloths lying there, but he did not go in. Which, again, is a small detail, but he's trying to get this right. He probably wanted Peter to go in first, by the way, because at that point, Peter was already leader and, in a sense, authority for the disciples. So verse 6, still answering the question of what happened. Simon Peter came, following him, and went into the tomb. Saw the linen cloths lying there, which, by the way, is evidence that the body had not been stolen by grave robbers. Uh, Most likely, grave robbers would have taken that, (laughs) right? Because it's wrapped in that cloth. Grave robbing was a common problem then for the record, uh, so much so that the Emperor Claudius ordered capital punishment for anyone who robbed the grave, who destroyed a tomb, and even for those who displaced the ceiling stones. Uh, So he saw the linen cloths lying there, verse 6, and the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself, another little detail to be accurate, to bolster the evidence. Then the other disciple, Speedy John, who reached the tomb first, yeah, you told us, also went in, and check this out, and he saw and believed. He saw and believed. This is fascinating. Look at verse 9. For as yet they did not understand the Scripture. What Jesus had been teaching, what he'd been telling them, all that they'd learned from him, they couldn't put it together even up to this point where it says, as yet they did not understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. Verses 8 and 9 just by themselves are fascinating. John writing this says, he saw and believed for as yet they did not understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. This was their, their aha moment. This was the, now we get it. Now we get it moment. Apparently John, who wrote these words, hadn't fully understood and hadn't even fully believed Jesus' previous words about rising from the dead. He thought that was crazy talk, right? He thought Jesus was the crazy one. Now this is fascinating because what it tells us, friends, is this. Resurrection made clear what was unclear. It made explicit what they hadn't yet understood. Jesus had been trying to tell them, trying to teach them, but they didn't fully grasp what he was saying. But, but resurrection, an empty tomb, made something incredibly complex. This, this whole God does stuff in the middle part. Resurrection made something incredibly complex, simple and clear. They understood at this point Jesus had won the victory over death and sin. And the first disciples, as we see here in John 28 and 9, the first disciples, they had to see it for themselves to believe it. They had to see it for themselves before they believed it, before they followed in a way which was wholehearted. Which brings us to why. Why does it matter? Why does this resurrection stuff matter? Turn with me to Romans 8, 11 if you're not there yet. 
Romans 8.11. This is a great verse. Uh, Paul is sort of riffing on this idea of living as resurrected people. He's talking about people who have the Spirit in them, people whose hearts are soft to hear from God. And he says this, Romans 8.11. If the Spirit, meaning the Holy Spirit, most Bibles have a capital S to show this, if the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, lives in you, then He who raised Christ from the dead, meaning God the Father, will also give life, check this out, to your mortal bodies. If, if God can do this with Jesus, this resurrection thing, if, if God can raise Jesus from the dead, then He will also, through the Spirit, give life to your mortal bodies, your current bodies, this side of heaven, the body that is subject to death. That's why he calls it a mortal body. Paul's not talking about future glory yet. That comes later in chapter 8. He's talking here in verse 11 about the already and not the not yet. At least not yet. <laughs> if you followed that, you deserve Easter candy. So check this out. Romans eight eleven. Read that again. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, which crazy Christians believe, then he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who lives in you, who dwells in you here and now. Here's why resurrection matters. And this is what Paul was trying to communicate in Romans 8. Christ's resurrection. Christ's resurrection, which demonstrated Christ's power over sin, is now in us. Christ's resurrection is now in us through the Spirit, which makes possible in the here and now lives that show that that demonstrate victory over the power of sin in death, just like the empty tomb showed. Friends, this truth, this truth that in the resurrection of Jesus we have and can live victory over sin and death, that truth is the center of gravity for every Christian. Without resurrection, this is in vain. Paul says so in 1 Corinthians 15. Because, friends, resurrection is for us not just a message we preach. Resurrection is the life of freedom we live. You see, friends, put most simply, here's the basic historical facts of the gospel, of the good news about Jesus. Jesus died, was put in a grave, and it was sealed. Which, which felt like his death on Friday was the end of the story. When, when he's in the tomb, it looked like the dream was over, like hope had died with Jesus, and it looked like evil had won. But then on Sunday, God raised Jesus from the dead, and everything, everything changed forever. What God did here in the middle that raised Jesus from the dead 
and meant that 500 saw him after the tomb was empty, meant that Jesus had broken all the rules. What, what resurrection means, what resurrection means in the here and now for those who are made alive through that same spirit that raised Jesus, what resurrection means is that you and I can live with a total abandon for the sake of Christ as we were meant to live. And I propose that the lives of those first followers of Christ and the testimony of the scriptures want us to understand that lesson. We can live now with the total abandon that marked them. The reality if we follow Jesus and have the Holy Spirit in us, like Romans 8 says, is that we can live resurrected lives today. It means, it means you can live a radical life of selflessness that just gives and gives and gives. Because you can be confident that no matter what, the same power that raised Christ from the dead will be used by God to accomplish his purposes through you. You don't have to live a life of take, take, take. It means you can live a radical selflessness that loves and loves and loves because you can be confident that no matter what, the same power that raised Christ Jesus from the dead will be used by God to accomplish his purposes through you now. The truth of resurrection means that we are able today to live a life of total selflessness that serves and serves and serves. Because no matter what, the same power that raised Christ Jesus from the dead will be used by God to accomplish his purposes through you today. Resurrection means you don't have to go on living in the fear that keeps us from doing what we know God's called us to do. And friends, this matters because a watching world needs so very badly to see resurrection power in the lives of followers of Jesus. This may be perhaps the most important thing our world needs that we skip over for everything else that we pretend will work. A watching world needs so badly to see resurrection power in the lives of the follower of Christ Non-believers hearing about and following Christ depends on whether we live like we have seen and believe in an empty tomb. This matters because souls are at stake in whether we believe there was an empty tomb and live like it. This matters because the difference between the fear that keeps us from selflessness and that just takes and that hoards and that hides will keep us from becoming who God made us to be and will communicate to people not so sure about that empty tomb. That's what they'll read from your life. This matters.
I'm going to close with an illustration I've given before, so some of you may recognize this. There was once a young engineer from East Tennessee who was sent to Ireland by his company uh, to work in a new electronics plant for a couple of years. It was a two-year assignment that he had accepted, um, and he did it because he could earn enough to come back and marry his longtime girlfriend back in East Tennessee. She had a job near their home in uh, East Tennessee, and their plan was to pool all their resources and to put a down payment on a house when he returned. Uh, so they corresponded quite often in the meantime for those couple of years. This is back in the days of, uh, you know, paper. But as these lonely weeks went by, she began to express doubts that he was being true to her. I mean, because he's far away. He's exposed to young Irish lasses with red hair and cool accents, you know. I'm sure they didn't sound like that. So this young engineer writes back, declaring with great passion. He was paying no attention to those Irish ladies. He said, I admit that sometimes I'm tempted, but I fight it because, he said this, I'm keeping myself for you. Well, pretty soon a package arrived for the engineer in Ireland, and he received this package that contained a note from his girl and a harmonica, and he says, uh, and she said this to him in the package, I'm sending this note to you so that you can learn to play this harmonica and have something to take your mind off all those other girls in Ireland. And the engineer replied, thank you for the harmonica. I am practicing every night, and I am thinking only of you. So at the end of this two-year stint, this engineer was transferred back to company headquarters. He takes the first plane back to Tennessee to be reunited with his girl. The whole family was with her, everyone excited for the reunion. But as he rushed forward to embrace her, she held up a restraining hand and said sternly, just hold on a minute there, Billy Bob. I told you he's from East Tennessee. Before any serious hugging and kissing gets started here, let me hear you play that harmonica. I want to hear you play that harmonica. He did. Here's the question. Friends, if we live in a world that looks at our claims of resurrection and says, just hold on, hold on a minute there. Hold on a minute there. Before I'm going to do anything serious about this following Jesus thing, I want to hear you play that harmonica. Friends, a whole bunch of us are looking at Irish lasses instead of playing harmonicas and practicing and following Jesus with a kind of abandonment that shows I believe the tomb was empty. We're called to pick up, friends, or those men and women at the empty tomb left off because we live with the same power that raised Christ from the dead. We can live radically selflessly for the sake of demonstrating through our own lives the power of God to raise Jesus from the dead. Lord God, we thank you for showing us in the person of Jesus